This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to the beginning of Summer Songs with Com City Church. I'm so excited about this. Uh, now we're actually... Uh, in a, in a bit of a weird turn of events, we're starting our summer psalm series today in the book of Habakkuk. All right, and I'll kind of explain that in a little bit. Um, but first of all, I want to let you know what summer psalms are. If you're new to Common City Church, is your first summer with us, then first of all, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be diving into the original hymn book of God's Word. The book of Psalms is 150 different songs that are really for everything from lament to praise to grievances. I mean, it's got everything. This is kind of the ancient prayer journal of the Bible. We've got um, a number of different authors, a lot of them written by King David himself. And this is the thing that I love about the Psalms. Years ago, I began asking the Lord, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a songwriter and I love, I love writing praises to the Lord, taking my prayers, putting them to melody. And years ago, it hit me. I was like, Lord, if you wrote songs, I bet they'd be epic. Like, I wish I could hear the songs that you would write. And then suddenly, I felt like the Lord just said, Kurt, I did. I wrote 150 of them, put them in my word and forgot to copyright them. Now, I'm just kidding. God didn't forget to copyright them, but he did give us access to them. And one of my favorite things about taking God's word and putting it to music is it helps me to memorize. It makes it easier. Um, I know last week, if you got to see our service online, um, the last eight minutes was full of the kids at Commonwealth City Church quoting God's word to music. Um, I give you permission right now you want to stop, go to YouTube, see last week's video, and watch that last eight-minute clip to see, to see our kids. I'm talking like some of the, some tiny little dudes who are up there quoting these scriptures. And I mean, it was encouraging, refreshing, but also a little bit convicting to me. Because as they, as they begin to just recite the Word of God, it reminds me like, Lord, am I the kind of man that is habitually hiding your Word in my heart? And the reason that we stop to sing the Psalms is because, first of all, we believe that God's word is absolutely truth. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely sufficient to teach us what we need to know about his heart, his character, about what, it, what we need to be encouraged to do life alongside him, do life in the spirit. But also, Psalms tells us something unique. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That hiding God's word in our heart is an encouragement to holiness unlike anything else we can do in our Christian life. And so, be encouraged, be edified by the children of Commonwealth City Church, but also be convicted. And for you that are, that are older, that are adults, I encourage you, follow along with us over the summer. I think over the course of the summer and all the songs that we're going to sing, that if you were to memorize along with us, everything that we're going to give you musically, we'll give you access online, send out videos and things like that. But I think by the end of this, you memorize between 40 and 50 verses. And so I encourage you and I challenge you, Memorize, hide his word in your heart and see if he doesn't keep his word. And so we're going to start today in the book of Habakkuk. And the reason we're going to do that is because this is Habakkuk's best attempt at imitating, in a, imitating the ancient psalmist David. Even at the end of the book of Habakkuk, he's going to say in Habakkuk 3.19, the very last verse, it's going to say, To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is intended to be sung. And specifically the passage we're going to look at, which is the last three verses, I want to give you a little background on Habakkuk, and then we're going to have some help with that from a video we're going to show you here in a second. But Habakkuk is a unique 
a unique prophetic book. And it's unique because, first of all, it's not written as a prophetic word to God's people. Typically, that's what happens. God gives a word to his prophet, and the prophet shares it and writes it down, puts it down on a paper or on a tablet, or, and in such a way that the people of God can hear it, that the kingdom of Israel can hear it. But this is going to be unique because instead of talking to the people, Habakkuk talks to God. And we're going to get a glimpse into the prayer life of the prophet as he's heard this news about the Babylonians that are going to come and they're going to take over and they're going to go into captivity, the people of Israel are. And it's going to be this journey of him questioning God's justice and God responding. And then him saying, I'm going to contend with you and stand on this wall and stand in my place until I get a good answer. And then meeting God in such ways as, man, God, I, I forgot who I was dealing with. And ultimately, it's going to conclude, despite everything that's going on, with rejoicing. So let's, let's dive in for a second. I've got a, um, a video you're going to get to watch that is uh, from an organization that does incredible job of diving into the story and the history behind, uh, behind text and God's word. I want you to see this, first of all, because it's an amazing resource in Habakkuk, but even more importantly, it's an amazing resource just to learn truth. If you're going to be spending some time on YouTube, I encourage you, um, follow, this, follow this video and then just keep watching as this, uh, as this organization dives into God's word and teaches us the truth and the history behind the text. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. 
God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future, that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now, the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God.
And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. All right. So let's get into it. Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though the fruit not be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, Fields yield no fruit. Flocks be cut off in the fall. There be no herds in the stalls. As when we read that for us, you know, like, man, that's a big old long list. But as a Jewish person hearing that in the context, it was just like he was going piece by piece. Like, well, okay, if the fig tree didn't blossom, that's okay. Because you, you've at least still got, like, still the grapes. The, still the grapes should grow that would provide food and provide wine. Would provide, like, a sweetness. He's like, no, no, the sweetness from life is going to be removed too. It's like, well, at least, we've, at least we're going to have some other crops. No, those have been cut off as well. Well, at least we've got our flocks and we've got our herds. And what he's saying is, what he's saying is, God, I know that what you're telling me is not just, hey, the Babylonians are coming and things are going to get bad. You're saying you're about to experience famine. You're about to experience the removal of everything on the exterior, everything circumstantially that you would be prone to depend on for your joy. What are you going to do about it? And Habakkuk responds to the Lord. He says, God, if you take away everything, if you take away everything in this life, everything that I have to hold on to, financial gain, provision for my children, for my family, everything that I have learned to lean on in my culture. If you take it all away, here's how I'm going to respond. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. As we, uh, as I see that scripture, even this week, I was reminded, you know, for a lot of my life, I, I'd always heard this. I'd always heard that God's love is unconditional. You know? So like, I know that, yeah, God's love, unconditional. It doesn't, it doesn't love me because of what I've done, because of who I am. He definitely doesn't love me because I deserve it. His love is unconditional. That's what grace is. You know, this, un, this undeserved love and affection that the Father has lavished upon me by way and by means of his Son's blood that has covered up and made atonement for my sin, that has given me access to friendship with the Father, to rip down the dividing wall of hostility like Ephesians says. But the one thing that I, I feel like I missed for a lot of my Christian life is that God's love is not the only thing about him that's unconditional. His joy is unconditional. He says things in his word like rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. It's Philippians 4. He's saying just in case you missed it and you've heard rejoice always and you were able to just read past it, I want to repeat that. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in every circumstance. I want to read you a couple passages. There's a, there's a moment in Hebrews, uh, two moments in Hebrews actually that I, that I love. The first one's in Hebrews chapter 10. And he's talking to the persecuted church here. The group of people that are undergoing persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And not only are they undergoing like persecution, like physical harm, but there was a lot more to it than that. There was financial persecution. It said that they had their goods and their property stolen and plundered. Like people were coming into their homes, ripping out the things that they owned and ruining them or burning them. And here's what he says about them. You, 
joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Not just you were okay with it and you trusted, oh Lord, they burned my couch. I know you'll give me another one. No, no, no. He said you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. He says in other places, even in Hebrews, it was like you took delight in the fact that God had entrusted you. He had entrusted you and said, you know what? I know, I know that they love me so much that even if I take things away from them, they will be faithful. There's another place that maybe one of the most wild moments in all of God's word to me is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Where after it says in Hebrews 12, you know, it says we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. It says, because of that, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, for the joy set before him. When I think of joy, I think of circumstances that give me reason to be happy, that give me reason to lean towards contentment. But when God talks about joy, he's talking about something very different. He's talking about something very different. It's why it's so important when we get to verse 19 that he says, God, the Lord is my strength. Because just saying, I'm going ins- in, to like, insist on being joyful, that doesn't make any sense. The joy that he's talking about here is not our own joy. It's a borrowed joy. It's a borrowed joy from God himself. Now I say borrowed a little bit facetiously because the truth is he never wants you to give it back. He wants you to live with a joy that is alien to you, altogether unearthly. A joy that can only make sense in a divine heart that you and I get to watch manifest itself in our lives to a lost world in such a way that it doesn't make a lick of sense. I want you to see in God's word the way that he talks about joy. All right, he says, he says you know, in uh, James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says in the book of John, he says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He says in Peter, though you do not see him, yet you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. John again says, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Even in a reference back to um, that Habakkuk was likely referencing a moment back in the Psalms where, where the psalmist said, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. He's saying, if the fig tree doesn't blossom and all these things take place and the herds are gone and famine is, has overtaken my land, you know what? I'm going to have more joy than the Babylonians who are here conquering and in their middle of a party. Because I know a joy. I know a joy that knows how to wear a frown sometimes. Because this is one of the greatest differences between the way that you'll see joy defined in the world and that you'll see joy defined in God's Word. Joy in God's Word is an altogether different reality than what we're going to see in our culture. Because joy in our culture changes and fades with circumstances. It's the kind of thing that's more of a response to what's going on around you. But joy in the Word of God is unconditional, just like His love is. Best example I can think of in the Word of God when I hear this, when I hear these thoughts, is from the story of Abraham. Romans chapter 4, 
I'm just going to read you a couple of verses and then and it's got like a few moments in here that are really like a highlight reel of moments for us as the believe as those who love Jesus to go back to in our lives and say, Lord, make this true of me. Talking about Abraham, it says, you know, that, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may, t- may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but... He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Same thing that said of Abraham could be said of of our prophet here, Habakkuk. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. When all the evidence was stacked against worship, he praised him anyway. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, makes me tread on the high places. Because the high places are kind of this reminder to us of where we get to dwell, of where we get to dwell like in his presence. Your right hand is fullness of joy. There's fullness of joy in the presence of God. And what he's saying, he says, make your, make your feet like the deer's feet. Um, the, the deer here, it's interesting because a deer that would like run on mountaintops, I don't know if you've ever seen videos of this like on the, you know, National Geographic or something, but when a deer runs on a mountaintop, it has this unique innate ability that God created it with, that when it's jumping on mountaintops and on rocks that would be deadly for almost any other animal, a deer, as it leaps, its hind legs will always find the exact same spot that the front legs just left. So if it lands on a small rock, it won't miss it by an inch. Like their feet are just innately, by God's design, trained so that they will go to the exact, like when the front legs jump, the back legs will immediately land in the same spot. And so they can tread on places that no other animal can get to. They can get away from danger. And what the Lord's saying is, I want you to live in a different realm. I want you to taste a joy that is going to be inexpressible and filled with glory. The kind of joy that is unconditional in the face of circumstances that would make it seem illogical. Guys, with what's going on in our world today, I mean, we've been through a wild few months. And from a pandemic that's left us getting to do our corporate gatherings through a, through a camera on the internet, to the, to the things that have been happening in our streets and this, this corporate national cry for justice that we're seeing right now. Because there is, there's a lot of evidence stacked up against joy right now. But for the life of a believer, for the life of a believer, joy doesn't just mean, oh, I'm going to be happy because of everything that's happening in my life and I'm going to look at the good. No, 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 it's saying, even if I'm staring at the thing that's not good, I've got something deeper I've got something deeper that circumstance cannot touch. I've got a joy that's not my own. It's a borrowed joy. It's a borrowed joy from the heart of God. And that leaves us just with a simple truth that I'd love to repeat from Nehemiah chapter 8. 
when he says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. I just want to close this in prayer. And as I do, I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to spend this week doing the best you can to memorize this passage. But then also begin to ask the Lord. The purpose of memorization is not just to have it in your head so you can impress people with the fact that you can quote Scripture. The purpose of memorization is to say, man, I want the Word of God to jump off the pages and to manifest itself in my life. And so as I pray over you, I'm going to challenge you. Memorize God's Word. Memorize back at 317-19. But as you do, begin to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to wake up that joy in you that does not make sense to a lost world. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for the fact that, uh, Lord, you're way, way better and way more glorious, way more incredible, way more inexpressible than I'm ever going to give you credit for in a sermon or a song or anything else. And I celebrate that, Lord. I thank you that even right now my attempt to pray for myself and for our people, for our nation, to exalt you, all of them are going to be failed attempts. But at the same time, you love to hear us cry out to you. You love to see your people lean into what it means to live a life of knowing you deeply, intimately, and to put that on display. And so, Lord, I pray right now over every person that's hearing my voice and over myself included that you will make us like a trophy case of grace. Make us like a trophy case of the joy that really is inexpressible. Make us a trophy case that just shows off the exquisite, extravagant love that you lavish on those who have come to know you. Lord, if there's anybody who's watching this right now that doesn't know you, I, I beg you, Lord, please draw them to yourself. May your kindness lead them to repentance. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, may your kindness lead us further and further into repentance until finally we find ourselves we find ourselves seeing sin as completely unappealing. And we see your goodness, righteousness, holiness, and what it means to please you being the only thing we're interested in. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your word, your name.